Thanks for joining us at Colts to Consciousness. This storytelling podcast is meant to be for entertainment purposes only and does not substitute for any medical advice. We may discuss triggering topics and we ask that you make your personal mental health a priority. Lastly, the opinions of our guests do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the host. Young people were definitely a target demographic, as it were, just because they were easier to persuade. Wow. You know, I was really depressed about it when I first got out there because I was like, I didn't prepare my whole life to trick kids into getting baptized. Like, this is not the way I want to do things. Hey, my name is Shalise Ansola, and this is Cults to Consciousness, where we discuss leaving high-demand religions or organizations and finding healing and independence through awareness and true individual sovereignty. If you're listening only and you would prefer to see all of our faces, head on over to YouTube at Cults to Consciousness. It would mean the world if you could like, subscribe, uh, hit the bell so you don't miss an episode. We love hearing from you, and we are going to be featuring comments now. So... Today's guests, plural, this is the first time on Colts to Consciousness we've had a threesome, guys. It's going to be great. <laughs> so these two, I, I've met them a little while ago from my days on Mormons on Mushrooms podcast. They're incredibly talented artists, both with writing and singing and anything music. And they're also hilarious. They're two best friends. They talk about everything ex-Mormon. They have an incredible channel on YouTube as well. If you are familiar with the ex-Mormon space, you have definitely seen their content. So I cannot wait to dive into it. Thank you so much for joining us, Tanner and Sam from Zelf on the Shelf. Hey, Hi. so good to be here. Thank you. Such a kind intro. <laughs> yeah, you also guys are by awesome. Bernie Sanders the cat. Oh, he's Bernie. here with us. Happy to have you, Bernie. He has a lot of opinions and he's not going to be afraid to share them. <laughs> oh, I love it. That's amazing. I have um, Oscar Mayer next to me who may or may not jump on my lap at any point. <laughs> we have a lot to talk about today. Um, first, I want to get into conversion. So I know that, Sam, you were a convert to the church, and I want to get your insider perspective on ways that high-demand religions, cults, Mormonism, uses conversion to get members and to also, like, convert the missionaries in the process. So I want to talk about that, but first, I would love to have you explain to our audience who may not be familiar, who may be nevermost, what Zelf on the Shelf means. Joseph Smith, way back in the day when he was... Uh, had organized a the Zion's camp little militia to fight the state of Illinois. <laughs> uh-huh. Was they were marching to liberate a city, and along the way they found this mound with a skeleton in it and an arrow in in it. And uh, Joseph Smith, never one to waste an opportunity to prove his prophetic prowess, said, "This is the body of Zelf, a white Lamanite prophet warrior who fought in the last battles." of the Book of Mormon. And um, the Book of Mormon apologists who have tried to explain where the Book of Mormon literally happened have been wringing their hands about it ever since because it completely contradicts (laughs) everything that they believe about Book of Mormon geography. Um, But it's so fun for us. So I always thought that was a goofy little story, a goofy little name when we were trying to figure out what we should call ourselves. That one really stood out and yeah. On the shelf, you know, you've got the <clears throat> idea of putting all your doubts and things on the shelf. And we do a lot with books, too. So, yeah. you know. Yep. That's I'm awesome. And explain to people why white Lamanite is a little problematic in more Book of Mormon terms. <laughs> <laughs> well, we already start with a, a just normally problematic situation of Lamanites. Yes, exactly. <laughs> which are uh, supposed to be the native, the ancestors of the Native Americans who allegedly, according to the Book of Mormon, were Jews who sailed across uh, the ocean and settled the New World. And uh, unfortunately, they were very idle and wicked so god cursed them with a dark skin so they wouldn't be attractive to the white people it said that in the book of mormon i think they've since uh censored that little bit um but there it was in the most correct book ever written uh (laughs) that god curses people with dark skin so then to find a white lamanite is just uh wow a really special guy yeah, <laughs> very very special as are you a prophet warrior no less <laughs> <Got it all. laughs> i actually love the significance because you guys are pretty special and you're your own prophet and prophetesses of the ex-mormon space 
And we happen to be white. <laughs> and you're white. I won't stop. I can't stop. Oh, that's so great. All right. Let's get into your story then, Sam. So you converted when you were 16. Yes, conversion. Yeah. And I know you've told your story a million times, but for people who aren't familiar, what was that process like for you? Where, What kind of... What state of mind were you in when you encountered the missionaries or when someone was like, hey, you should check this out? And how did it make you feel to belong or become a part of the Mormon church? Yeah, so I met the missionaries. Um, at, well, I think I met them one time when I was 15, but essentially started seeing them more significantly at 16 because I had a friend who was Mormon. And me and another one of my friends were taking... Uh, the six missionary lessons, kind of just thinking it'd be a, you know, cool way to learn about our friend's religion. Um, not, ne- not definitely not understanding like the intensity with which they're going to try and convert you. Mm. Um, but I mean, I do feel like I had kind of like the, the nicest, kindest, most loving conversion possible in that, you know, this was my friend who was, um, had a sibling who also became my friend and, um, his parents, I sort of just became like close to this family who are just a genuinely lovely family. And they sort of took me under their wing um, through Mormonism, but um, also like had known them for, I think a couple of years prior to that. And like they, um, both of these siblings were just like lovely people. Everyone at school knew them as just the kindest and the parents also so kind. So just really genuinely good people. So I was obviously drawn to that and you know as a as a troubled 16 year old with a lot of unhealed childhood trauma that you know wouldn't even begin to be acknowledged by me for like I guess six more years until after I left the church properly at least um it was very appealing you know just this warm inviting home where I'd go to have missionary lessons and um you know missionary lessons obviously invoke a lot of emotion a lot of the time you know they Mm -hmm. have you read out let's say that scripture that's like for Christ so loved or God so loved the world. He gave his only begotten son, but they have you put your own name in it. And as a 16 year old who's struggling with issues of self-worth and am I lovable? And, you know, previously I figured, no, I'm not. (laughs) This is all very appealing, you know, just this um, potential sense of belonging. Um, And yeah, it was just sort of a, it was a nice warm feeling for me. Someone who had come from, uh, a difficult home growing up where things weren't necessarily warm and positive much of the time. Mm-hmm. And where were you living at the time? So I was in England. All this oh, okay. happened in England. Yeah. So there are only two Mormons in my school. I was just going to say that. That brother been. and sister. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Wow. So yeah. that's so interesting. Um, so then you really weren't exposed to a lot of Mormon stuff growing up except for your friend, no. right? The only thing I knew about Mormons was like the joke in Friends where Rachel says uh, she might say she's Mormon to excuse why she's not drinking on a date because she doesn't want to tell the guy she's actually pregnant. <laughs> and then I think I genuinely cannot even think of another single instance of even hearing about Mormons. I think um, I didn't even know my friend was Mormon until around the time I started getting missionary lessons. It wasn't, yeah, it wasn't really known in England what, what Mormons were. Yeah. Hadn't heard much about them. When you were presented with this faith, it seemed pretty normal. I mean, obviously your friend was very normal. What was the what was the community like out there as far as being Mormon? Because I've moved around a few times, so I know what it's like to be Mormon in Utah, Mormon in Portland, Mormon in Vegas, Mormon in California, mm. and they're all different. The way that they go about life seems very different, and the way that they approach the doctrine feels very different, where some people may feel that in Utah it's more strict, but at least the part of the state where I was, it was more relaxed because everyone was Mormon. So no one really followed the rules as hard. It was kind of like, oh, we all kind of slip up. But then when I moved to Portland, they were like, no pop, no caffeine, no. Th-. And I'm like, whoa, you guys are crazy. Like, why are you so strict? So what was it like in England then? So I'd so the family that sort of brought me into Mormonism, I'd say they were quite strict, but but not in a way that made them like, like they were just very kind, you know? And mm-hmm. so they had kind of the, the normalness <laughs> of a regular English person. 
or just a kind English person, and then also were strict in this religion. So it's not that it um, Mormonism felt normal. Like it, in England, it's just weird to read a book of scripture at all regularly, or even praying every day is kind of like, oh, you're you're kind of intense, you know. Anything uh, remotely d- devotional <laughs> towards religion is kind of is strange in England, or at least uh, the little world I grew up in. Um, but I would say that. I mean, everyone at church was really kind. Um, I do feel like when you have a high demand like religion like Mormonism and it's not in an area that is all people in that religion, uh, that, that really can benefit it because people uh, know they can't get away with the same sort of like judgmental treatment. They can't use the church to be passive aggressive with people. I, there's just ways, you know, when you get Mormons together that things get weird. Mm-hmm. Um, and often passive aggressive and judgmental. And I feel like some of, maybe some of like the worst parts of Mormon culture are sort of um, mitigated by, you know, being in a ward that's not in an area like that. Cause everyone has to exist in the regular world with people who don't give a shit about Mormonism. And you can't, you know, England is also a country where your religion is sort of a private thing. You know, you're not, you certainly can't go around trying to convert people all the time. I mean, I think America is like, you know, obviously it has more of a Christian backbone more recently mm-hmm. and stuff. And so it obviously is so dependent on where you are in America. But I just think there's more religious zeal and fervor in America than in England. So, yeah, I do feel like a lot of the members in my ward in England, um, you know, they, they came across as very, they were very nice and normal people um, who also happened to be Mormon. And yeah, I, I do think, I mean, I, in my experience, people are a bit more, um, at, at least moderate in, I don't know if moderate's even the right word, because sometimes you can almost be stricter when you're not surrounded by Mormons, yeah. because, you know, that's your thing. Be an and you example. Really tightly to it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it's tough to say, but I would say in terms of like outward presentation, I do feel like English Mormons uh, come across less zealous or what well, I'm trying to just be, yeah, I don't want to accidentally use an offensive word because that's not what I'm trying to say, but yeah. Yeah. No, I, I understand what you mean. So that's really interesting then. Did you grow up with any type of religion before Mormonism? Was this your first peek into praying to God if it wasn't very common in England? I just had a very light touch of Christianity occasionally in that if I, you know, the few times I'd been to a church service, it would be a Church of England service through the Brownies or Girl Guides. Um, and occasionally in primary school, we'd have a vicar come in Church of England vicar and tell us a little story about Jesus, you know, twice a year. So, you know, Christianity was the religion I was most familiar with, but not by much. Mm. Yeah, because I could imagine, and I'm, I'm curious to hear your experience, if I was never exposed to the act of praying or speaking to a higher power or in a way that's like supposed to be daily and or all day, (laughs) where you're supposed to pray like eight times a day, Mm. I would imagine that when you do make that connection, you would immediately say, oh, well, yeah, Mormonism is the true religion because now you do have some sort of spirituality and connection to a higher power that you maybe didn't before. Was that the case for you? Yeah, I see what you're saying in that, yeah, I had sort of loosely prayed maybe occasionally growing up just in case, you know, in case someone's there. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, because I was 16, 17, the religion I was first exposed to I didn't have the awareness to know like this is a because obviously tons of people pray. I knew that in all kinds of religions. But mm-hmm. and even though, you know, it's not necessarily like I had any crazy prayer experience that would just like, you know, blow any doubt out of the water. It's more it's more gradual and line upon line than that, I think, with conversion. But yeah, it is easy to to have an experience and to then extrapolate that into, well, then this is what everyone should be doing. And, you know, that's like a sort of a spiritually immature mindset generally. And I was a teenager. So, of course, it was an ideal time to come into a thing like Mormonism and then believe with my whole heart, like, this is the way. Yeah, I can imagine it's probably easier to convert children slash young adults versus people who've been around a lot longer. Um, And I'd like to get, Tanner, your opinion too, because you are a missionary, and so you have like the opposite perspective. Was there anything that you found or you were told, like, go after people like this, go after teenagers or people who haven't been exposed to religion and kind of like 
insert yourself into a weak spot, if you will. Yeah. Um, in my particular mission, and it varies mission to mission, we had, um, <clears throat> I don't know if age was so much a factor as was seeking out specifically men to teach. Um, you were only supposed to teach a woman if like, she approached you and asked for it. And of course, if somebody was there with her so that you weren't teaching a person of the opposite sex alone. Huh. Um, and it was because they had such low activity rates that they felt they needed priesthood holders to actually build up the, the infrastructure as it were of the church. And since women can't hold the priesthood, they're just they their souls and salvation don't matter as much they can wait yikes <laughs> <laughs> um but and definitely in my mission there was a and this is definitely true in a lot of south american countries and elsewhere in the world where it's just easier to to manipulate children into getting baptized to doing things and so there was a lot of kids baptized and that was something that i really struggled with when i showed up because i just saw a lot of People, you know, hey, we're going to show you a magic trick. All right, now you're going to get in this special bath and get your parents to sign this. And now I get to say that I baptized 10 people by promising to take them to football, you know. Wow. Um, and I was like, you know, I was really depressed about it when I first got out there because I was like, I didn't prepare my whole life to trick kids into getting baptized. Like, this yeah. is not the way I want to <clears throat> do things. And, you know, the the culture kind of shifted a bit as I was on the mission, especially once a new president came in. Um, but it was still like young people were definitely a huge chunk, um, a, a, a target demographic as it were. Yeah. Um, just cause they were easier to persuade cause you just don't have as much information. You don't have as much as experience and everyone wants to feel special. And like, they found the thing that'll finally solidify their identity and give them pride and mm -hmm. what they're doing and who they are and all that. So yeah, if if that's why they end up a lot fall away too, because they initially uh, really what they're joining for is the social uh, dimension, having people who seem yeah. like they've got it figured out and who are kind and supportive and fun and doing all these fun things. And I think that's the real thing that people convert for by and large. I mean, there's other right. people who are like, I studied the Bible and I discovered that this one verse proves that this church is true. But I feel like most just want a good social, <laughs> a social group. <laughs> Though we know to not say that a lot of the time. Yeah. And also you kind of tell yourself that it's not that. Like you're, I think, well, I know for me, and I imagine this is the case with a lot of converts, you, you do have at least for a while that thing in your mind that's like, am I just going along with this because of, the people but it it's so it is so gradual and it all just becomes kind of blurry because mm -hmm. it's like well people that are helping you feel love love is kind of a spiritual feeling you yeah, know yeah. Mm -hmm. um so it, i mean it's very easy to make those associations and to not even know yourself where the where the line is and yeah well for me as well like being 16 17 you're not like hyper cognizant of your motivations at that age necessarily you might think you are but yeah, you know. I think one of the things I like to say is it feels like, and from my perception, it feels like high demand religions monopolize your feelings and your emotions to such a degree where you think feeling good means it's the spirit and feeling mm -hmm. uneasy means it's Satan. But mm -hmm. there's so many situations where you can feel uneasy about something, but that's just your gut telling you, oh, go a different direction. It's not Satan like whispering in your ear. And mm -hmm. you might feel uneasy about something because it's new and maybe you just don't understand it yet. And yet you're just going to block yourself off to it because you think it's Satan. So when you have these missionaries going into people's homes and like you said, putting your own name into the scripture, of course, you're going to feel a certain kind of way. Like when you think about someone sacrificing for you or you think about someone being your savior or someone looking out for you and praying to someone, you're going to feel good. And so they say, oh, that feeling, that's a spirit. And that means that the church is true. I'm like, well, you, anyone in any religion can say the same <clears throat> thing when they have a spiritual experience. So that's something that I always try and hit home for people when they say, no, I know this church is true. And I say, okay, well, is it because of a spiritual experience that you had? Usually it's yes. Well, is it possible that that spiritual experience was just a connection with a higher power and had absolutely nothing to do with Joseph Smith. 
because usually that's the case. Or it's the case where, like I was mentioning, they monopolize any good feeling and just call, well, see, it's true because you feel good about it. So what was it like for you, Sam, when you had that feeling or if you did ever have that feeling where you're like, yes, this church is true and I'm going to join? Yeah, I think that, I mean, there are a few variations of that feeling, but um, essentially, you know, church experiences and interaction with members and kind of I suppose reading the scriptures even though it's kind of not really about the reading of the scriptures it's more just like the devoting time to a certain kind of mindset you know Mm -hmm. Um, all of those things did produce you know not not necessarily consistently but enough experiences of like euphoria I mean that kind of is like the peak one I think those those spiritual experiences where you're euphoric um you know, general oxytocin, feeling loved, feeling belonging, feeling loved towards others, feeling grateful. Gratitude is something that is often emphasized in Mormonism. That is, you know, universally a good idea. Well, Mm -hmm. I guess unless you're using gratitude uh, as a way to become comfortable in oppression. So I don't know about that, but you know what I'm saying? Gratitude (laughs) is a good thing to do. Um, So yeah, it, it did evoke good feelings. Um, as part of this sort of larger picture of, as I said, increased belonging, meaning, purpose, friendship, love, all those things that we crave. Yeah. Yeah. Tanner, did you feel when you were on your mission, is that kind of, and I don't want to put words into your mouth, so tell me if you think this is true or not, seeing people in that state of euphoria and being like, oh, yeah, um, this is why I'm doing it. Even though I might be baptizing them under sneaky circumstances, they're clearly happy. So this is good. I'm doing the right thing. Did you feel that way? Did I feel happy for the people who were doing it, even though I had some qualms about how they were being converted? Yeah, happy, but also like as a justification to maybe something that you felt wasn't really right. Yeah. And it's all kind of, it's all a little... A little squirrely, all the reasoning, right? Yeah. <laughs> You're constantly like uh, going in weird circles, thought circles, because it doesn't add up. So you've got to avoid critical thoughts with other things. Um, so I never did anything that I, well, I take that back. I, I did things that I do regret, <clears throat> um, you know, putting a lot of pressure on people to change their lifestyles in ways that actually weren't healthy for them. You know, I, I have a, he's still a, a dear friend um, who uh, we persuaded them very much, put pressure on them to, on him and his partner to get married so that she could get baptized. So we got oh, them wow. married and we got her baptized and we got him off smoking, got him off smoking. We just made him sick of smoking and for a long enough so that he could, you know, perform the ordinance or whatever. Um but, you know, that kind of thing that felt like really manipulative. And you always believe that it's in their best interest that having the ordinance of baptism is ultimately what will save people. Mm-hmm. And so even if it's not in the most ideal circumstances or even if you're, you're unsure how much their heart is really in it, at least you're giving them the opportunity to be saved and then God will judge their heart from there. So it's like you just do all that you can to get them in the water Don't question how much that is a personal desire to feel fulfilled in your mission and to look good to the people at home who you're writing to and to your mission president who's going to promote you or whatever. Uh, It's just about loving the other people enough to force them into baptism. um, But there were other things like, um, you know, we started teaching a woman with obvious with severe mental illness um, and who was not not ready or or capable of fully comprehending or accepting what was going on. And then I, I left, but heard that things ended up moving forward with her. And I always felt a little weird about that. Not that mentally ill people shouldn't be the, uh, you know, allowed the opportunity to meet Jesus or, you know, whatever baptism entails, only that it seemed like it was just a way of manipulating someone into baptism so that the, so we could check the numbers and mm-hmm. feel that we were, you know, that the people who were there were good missionaries or whatever. So it was it was a little tough. Yeah. I've heard that quite a few times that 
most missionaries go out expecting to have more of a spiritual connecting experience with these investigators only to find that they're like, nope, it's just the numbers. Like, like it feels like they don't really care about the people they're converting. It's more about how many you can put on the books. And in that case, how much follow-up did you do with these people that you did convert? Or did you just kind of like, done, all right, on to the next? <laughs> done, all right, on to the next. Mm. Um, and it's it's kind of sad because a lot of the people who convert convert for the specific missionaries. And that is definitely consciously approached in the missionary field of like, you're not converting people to you, you're converting them to Christ and to his church. So the idea is that you're supposed to get people there and then the membership of the church can befriend them and keep them solid in the church. But really what happens is people get used to having these friends drop by and have meaningful conversations where they're being asked questions about their innermost thoughts and desires and hopes and dreams and values and all that. And then once those people are gone and they don't receive the same interest, that can kind of wilt a bit. And some do say strong, but the retention rate in Brazil specifically where I was is is pretty bad. Um and I think a lot of the people who did get baptized were kind of expecting for that friendship to be to continue. And I did feel bad, especially in the beginning of like, oh, no, I've become so close to these people. I've changed their life. Um, I'm a, like a part of their family now. And now I'm just getting you know shipped two hours away and I will literally never speak to them again. Mm. And that's how it's been. We were we were <clears throat> actually uh we were not allowed to maintain communication with people after we had moved out of the area. So, and I moved around a lot. I had like, I was just constantly getting moved, constantly getting new companions. And that was really hard at first because you're just to teach people and then get so connected and then be gone and never see them again. And eventually I think I just kind of like shut down that part of my heart or disconnected. And it was kind of a, a sad thing, but had to do it to maintain some sense of stability or something. I don't know. Yeah, it seems like a very odd sales job where you pay $20,000 to sell something. You're selling the Lord, like you're selling Jesus, you're selling salvation, you're selling something that is so personal and so vulnerable. And then like you said, okay, bye. And these people are just like, wait a second. I Yeah, that must be really difficult. Sam, did you feel that way? Did you feel the drop off of the missionary presence? Um, You know, a bit, but I think I was, there were always new missionaries that was, I remember I had like the, there's post-mission, there's post-baptism lessons on there. I think so. So I feel like I always had this like fresh influx of missionaries who took a lot of interest in me because mm-hmm. there wasn't a lot of like... <laughs> Not you a know, lot of converts you in know, England. Yeah, you know, <laughs> baptizing up a storm mm. in the UK. Um, and, you know, I was like young and down to clown and also took it really seriously. So I feel like I was a, well, repeatedly described as a golden investigator, which I'm sure I was because I was very studious and committed. And- we should get you a trophy. I should. <laughs> I deserve one. Um, and also just something I thought of while you two were speaking. Um, I really don't think it can be overstated. Like the value that you provide to people when you just give them a space where they feel able to be vulnerable. I think that's a big thing that people around the globe are, you know, feeling. And it is a vacuum that needs to be filled. So I think any, it's so, um, it's just really powerful. I mean, we we see it with all kinds of high demand cults and religions. Um, anyone that can give someone a space to be vulnerable has a lot of power a lot of the time, especially when those people like desperately need a space to be vulnerable because they are hurting or, you know, they maybe don't have the strength of connections they truly need to thrive or meaning and purpose. I just, there's a lot of manipulation that can happen through offering someone that. What came to mind when you were talking is you're giving them therapy. Yeah. A botched version of therapy. Very botched. Yeah. Yeah. But so for people who've never experienced anyone who's cared enough to listen or reach out or talk about these vulnerable things, I can see how that would feel really good. Um, Mm -hmm. Like you were saying in in your own home, you were getting things that you weren't getting in your childhood. So it made sense to you and it felt good. And I think that's just one of the many manipulation tactics that happen when you get someone in that vulnerable space. 
Yeah, because I mean, I can see so clearly how Mormonism offered me like a pseudo version of healing because it was allowing me to feel lovable and, you know, loved and I suppose forgiven and all those things. But but it was like redemption through this external source. It wasn't actually addressing any of the root issues in me, you know, from childhood or conditioned patterns through trauma, all that stuff. It wasn't really touching that. It was just sort of claiming that this external force can come in and say, you know, you're enough, you're lovable, just like stick to this thing and that will be what determines you know, you and how good you are and whether you're worthy of those things. The so Jesus Band-Aid. It is. It really is a Jesus Band-Aid. And not to say that there aren't people who are engaged in like actually productive healing who also like Jesus, because obviously that can be the case. But I mean, Mormonism certainly wasn't um, true healing, but it felt like it at the time because to a 16 year old mm. who hadn't known that feeling of self-worth and, um, you know, being loved and all that stuff. Um powerful new um and also it's not like i was really um diving into all the different possibilities and you know all the different religions and all the different psychological healing tools that are out there it was just like this was just it was convenience something you know yeah and i also feel like what tana's story highlights is that um it's Mormon missionaries aren't trying to be manipulators you know it's like that everyone is in service of the system and the system is like greater than any individual person in it so you know I think we get Mormons who will take offense to the way we talk about things sometimes because they're like well I went on a mission and I was see I had a you know my heart was in a good place and and we we know that you know Mm -hmm. when we talk about manipulation it's not because we think that individual people are conniving and cunning and you know, deceitful, not good. Yeah. But, but people can be acting with good intentions and can still be unknowingly cogs in a machine that is fundamentally manipulative. I'm really glad that you brought up the unintentionally manipulative thing, because that's also something I was trying to kind of get around, but I didn't say it as eloquently. When, when I was asking Tanner, if He felt like he could justify the things that he was doing, even though it felt a little off, because I do think that I mean, these these are kids. I mean, they're Mm -hmm. 18 to 21 ish. They don't really have any real world experience yet. Some of them may have gone to college for a year, but does that really count as experience? Um, I think that they go out there with the best of intentions. Like you said, they their heart is in the right place, but it's because they're part of a system that has the greater issues behind it. The system that is saying, no, we need you to get 30 baptisms a month or we need you to be the highest performing mission in the whole area. So it encourages people to do things that they don't feel comfortable with in the name of God. And it makes it okay because as Tanner was mentioning, you're doing it for God. It's for a higher good. It's for a higher purpose. So yeah, I'm glad that we brought that up that there are so many incredibly manipulative ways, but also these missionaries are manipulated themselves. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Even into going. They're manipulated into giving themselves for two years, night and day, for this mission. So how did you feel going on a mission? Were you excited? Did you feel pressured into it? So I was extremely devout my whole life. Like um, my family was really, really into the church. And, you know, my dad was my bishop growing up. My mom was a seminary teacher Mm. and uh, just was always the focal point of our family unit. And I had experiences as a teenager that I thought were very, uh, they convinced me that what I was experiencing in the church was true. The euphoria and elation. Um, that came after so much psychological tension that was imposed by the church. And that's, of course, uh, a mechanism that practically all religions do use, which is making you so stressed out and then offering you relief from the stress that you yeah. feel so good in contrast. <laughs> and then they say, see? <laughs> uh, um, so I was very excited to go on a mission. And I just, <clears throat> I really really tried to keep myself worthy and pure and all that beforehand and was constantly studying, constantly reading everything I could um, in order to be the most valiant, effective tool in the hands of the Almighty. Yeah. And um, I got there and was so, so disappointed because as you said, it was just, it was like a marketing thing. It was like a door to door sales thing. And it seemed very much just about the numbers and um, 
made a lot of sacrifices that looking back, I think are very inappropriate. Um, I think it's really absurd that these uh, octogenarians who run the church are asking people, you know, 18, 19, 20 years old to work such ridiculously long hours in oftentimes really unsafe conditions. Mm-hmm. Um, my passport was kept from me. So even if I wanted to go home, I couldn't when there's plenty of missionaries on ex-Mormon Reddit or anywhere else who will tell you that that was the case for them, that they were literally prevented from leaving from being autonomous adults because the church had their their passport and they couldn't get around without it, Couldn't didn't have money. I often went without food, often wow. went without food because I personally didn't have any money to pay for it. And, I, and the church only allocated a certain amount for members. And so if you end up having to travel a lot due to the area you're in, you just have to go without. And um, yeah, oftentimes in unsafe conditions, lots of people face issues with medical stuff. And for the first couple months, I was just extremely depressed because I I was like, I just, I didn't prepare my whole life for this. And then the mission, and you know, I thought it was, I thought we were going to be working miracles and, uh, you know, people would be knocking on our door. I've been praying to, and then the Lord showed me to come to your house. And that kind of stuff just never happened. And I was always praying, always trying to seek my, uh, you know, a, a stronger testimony for myself because I'd never had like a specific testimony of the Book of Mormon, even mm-hmm. though it was kind of in the package deal. Yeah. <laughs> and I was telling people that they could pray and find out it was true, even though that hadn't really happened to me. I just <clears throat> did that thing where it was like, oh, I've prayed and I don't feel bad. So that <laughs> must mean it's good. Yeah. So that must mean I'm doing the right thing. Um, and it's just extremely high pressure, like uh, the thought of, you know, I always heard it's better to go home dead than to go home early or go home unworthy. <sighs> and there were times when I just actually wanted to die out there where I just prayed a bus would hit me and mm. that would just be it because the the conditions of having to just be just walking all day on the equator in business attire like yeah. it's too much and being and not having anybody else who spoke the same language um except for one other american who told me the, when i got there the mission is the biggest <laughs> lie in the church like it sucks really? out here and i was like oh it does suck out here oh my but gosh. then it became this like even further test of faith of like okay well even if the organization that I've been looking forward to my whole life, which is the mission, even if that is like not aligned with my highest spiritual expectations, I'm going to prove to the Lord that I loved him enough to put up with it and to try to be the best missionary that I can could be despite being miserable. And, you know, eventually, especially once I could speak the language, it was a little easier and you get accustomed to just having a horrible, uh, you know, f- from 6.30 a.m. till 10.30 at night, just day in, day out, no full day break, not even once. Like, it's just, it was way too much and something that I look back on and be like, wow, I was totally taken advantage of. Like, they really, that was abusive. Like, I should not have been, I would not consent to do that for any job. And right. I was paying them for it. <laughs> right. That's what blows my mind. It's crazy. I think you brought up a good point, And I'm wondering, you said, okay, well, even if the church isn't true, I'm going to do this for God. Was that kind of your split? It wasn't even so much the church. It was just that even though the mission doesn't live up to my expectations oh, for mission. it, and I can see that it's, there's a lot of egos at play here. It's still the Lord's church. And even if my mission is a little weird, the whole thing is is still true. But it, it definitely did uh, wisen me up a little bit where I saw a different side of the church, which was the more business oriented, the more numbers oriented mm-hmm. and kind of maybe squashed any hopes of experience and experiencing anything truly miraculous because mm-hmm. um, that was kind of the the belief you go in with like you're gonna you're in part of the Lord's army like he's got your back you've got the priesthood you're gonna heal the sick and cause the lame to walk and the blind to see and the you know all that but it just never happened yeah also worth mentioning because you mentioned how you'd never really got a testimony of the Book of Mormon you weren't someone who went into the mission having never really read it oh no you I read, read it many so times yeah, I, <laughs> I learned to read reading the Book of Mormon missionaries oh will go on a mission and have never really read the Book of Mormon before they go I have heard that but that was not Tana. <laughs> 
And it's, you know, it's hard for people who watch our videos and they say, oh, this is just, you know, that person's just focusing on the bad and they just want to, they were just miserable their whole time and trying to make it everyone else's problem. And it's like, I was an assistant to the president. And at the time I would have told you that the mission was the best thing in the world because that's what you have to say. And that's whatever, and that's what you're trying to focus on. You really are trying to have the best time in the world because you want to do what's right. It's mm -hmm. only in hindsight where you're like, whoa, I would never have done that of my own accord if I wasn't deeply, deeply emotionally manipulated into doing that, I would not have done that. There were so many days when I did not and should not have got out of bed. I was like deathly sick and still oh. like, well, gotta work because someone's salvation is on the line and I don't want to make this about me, you know? Wow. And that's how that's how high demand religions work. They, they just try to sap as much of you as they can to strengthen what they've got going on. Yeah, so you're hungry, you're sick, depressed, tired, overworked, and yet you're still pushing along for these two years. I'm blown away at how you didn't just give up because anyone after a month of that, after two months of that would be like, no, 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 I'm good. Uh. And that just shows you how deeply into it you were and how these missionaries are. And that quote that you gave is so heartbreaking. Uh, we mentioned it in an episode with True Mormon Quotes where I would rather have you come home in a casket than dishonored and early. And it's so crazy to me how they can manipulate these these people into going and then manipulate them for two years again. And I think, and I've heard other people say, and I want to hear your opinion, that missions are more for converting the missionary than actually converting other people. Um, yes. They, yeah, they straight up tell you that. They do? <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, yeah, oh that's, a, that's a very common point that like, you know, they say, Elder, at the end of the day, the only convert that matters is you. Like... This is for you to prove your worthiness and to set the pattern for the rest of your life and to ensure that you get a very hot wife when you oh, get home. That's like. <laughs> wow. So yeah, it's definitely true. And I think someone on Ex Mormon Reddit recently, I saw it going, a meme going around um, talking about how, yeah, it makes sense that if you get someone to just like walk around, go door to door, get mistreated by people <laughs> and make them feel like this martyr complex. Like right. I've gone out to share this thing and everyone hates me for it. And everyone is just so prideful, which was always the talking line of why we couldn't baptize anyone who was uh, exceptionally critically thinking or well off and just content with life. No one is just content in Mormonism. They're all very prideful, too yes. prideful for the... Projection, yeah, <laughs> yeah, the pride thing that's one that gets me all the time, and I still catch myself feeling that way not prideful, the opposite is like be humble, you're being too humble because we're not <laughs> taught to be like, Yeah, I'm great, yeah, I have something mm -hmm. good to say, it's especially as women, down. <laughs> yes, especially as women, talk quieter, don't be the center mm -hmm. of attention, don't pull focus, yeah. shrink however you can shrink, just try and do it. <laughs> yes, exactly. Was there anything else from your mission that you feel is notable that you want to bring up and let people know about? Um, I guess just kind of reiterating what Samantha said that like, it's nobody's fault and nobody's, you know, we're not out saying like Mormons are awful, devious people. Um, it's like the thing of, it's just that because everyone's forced to do it, it's seen as this um, like rite of passage like like we saw with the whole uh, student debt thing. It's like, well, if I had to pay my student debt, everybody else should have to. Like if I had to endure some kind of misery, everyone else should have to. My parents yeah. beat me. So what's wrong if I spank my kids? Like, yeah. it's like, well, just because something bad happened to you doesn't mean other people have to do it. And there's kind of that idea, in especially in the mission and also on the church, that sacrifice brings forth the blessings of heaven. And the more discomfortable and uncomfortable you can be, the more... Uh, perturbed and uh, uh, be persecuted <laughs> and bothered and uh, yeah uncomfortable that you can be is more sign that you're on the right path and the Lord is testing you and the blessings will come later. And if I had to do that, then certainly you have to do that. And anyone who takes issue with it is just murmuring and complaining. And that is just a problem with high demand religions across the board. And I don't think it's a coincidence that um, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like missionary retention rates have got way lower and you hear much more these days of people going home early or having to mm. do a different type of mission or just people flat out not going. And because I feel like young Mormons now don't live in the kind of closed system they used to live in. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So number one, 
they're more aware of mental health. They're, they're less, I mean, cause the thing that I imagine keeps you going when everything is ho- horrifying is feeling like you genuinely, it's not an option to leave, mm-hmm. which now I feel like, again, because young women live in a more open system than they used to with like the internet, you know, that's not going to happen as much. And now they can even be on social media. When I was out, we couldn't communicate with family except for one day a week. Yes. We had like an hour of computer time and we lived for that hour. Mm. And just to be cut off from family like that, it's such a distressing time. was horrible. And I'm glad that they've changed that. Things are changing, but definitely not not fast enough to to keep up with reality. But I think young people can't force themselves into that misery in the same way they used to. Because again, they 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 have language to talk. Even young Mormons who still lived in quite a closed system, they have language around mental health and depression and anxiety, and they have more of a sense of what's healthy and what's not. I imagine when you're on your mission, and then imagine what it was like when your dad was on his mission or his dad. I mean, it's just like unfathomable how little outside input would come, you know, you would just have no concept of there being any other way to do things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, definitely the mission style has changed through the ages. Mm-hmm. Like they used to have just everything was memorized and you didn't go off script at all. You used to yeah. be able to like have a little bit more at different points, have more autonomy. You could go to the movies or travel by yourself. But um, it seems like within the last few years, decades, the like Stephen R. Covey maximum efficiency, like that the the business marketing uh strategizers of the church have kind of taken over and everybody pays homage to to that system <laughs> but yeah it's definitely not one that's like healthy for young people mm-hmm. to be f- forcibly immersed in yeah. yeah they they cut you off from your family from everything from the outside world that you knew and now you're only immersed in the one that you're in with the language even, the the new cultures. And one thing that I wanted to speak on is how they erase cultural identities. So they send these missionaries into different countries and they say, oh, I know your ancestors believed in multiple gods or or worshipped the earth or worshipped this and they do maybe plant medicine even. But all that has to go, you have to worship this version, which is like the American Christian church, right? Mm-hmm. Did you find that, Tanner, because you went to Brazil, right? Did you find that you were having to kind of culturally erase people in order to get them to fit into the Mormon box? Yeah, and you can kind of see it just like across the board. It, religion is and missionary evangelical religions are definitely like the the spiritual or philosophical arm of colonialism. And you could see a lot of the ways in which American culture is um, imposing itself or being adopted in lieu of more traditional uh, aspects in various cultures around the world. And maybe that's just the byproduct of becoming more and more connected, where we're all sharing the same media and watching similar things and everything's going on in real time everywhere all at once. But definitely as a missionary, you can feel that, especially with like the, you know, the emphasis on the white shirt tie thing. Like this is the way that God wants you to be. He wants you to be spending money on fancy clothes so that you can look like you, you're you capable of negotiating a business deal on any given Sunday. Mm-hmm. That's apparently very important to God. Um, but something that looking back, I feel very silly about, like, why would God care <laughs> about that? Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it is, it's sad to see that. Um, I think it's probably, I mean, it's better than like early Catholic colonialism where they're like, you have to convert or die. Yeah. And you see like, um, you know, in other cultures where other paradigms of living, especially with like trans people, non-binary people who have been fully celebrated and have like a, a, a space to exist in society and are seen as a contributing members of society as a role that need that a society needs to celebrate. Um, when the Christians come over, they say, no, there's only man and woman and you have to wear dresses and you got to wear ties or else you die. Um, we definitely see those like what a tragedy to, to see that. And, and Mormonism is further down the pipeline, uh, down the timeline. It's not so aggressive, but it still is involved in that cut type of erasure because the church is still anti-trans, anti-gay, and um, and has this idea of 
American exceptional exceptionalism that it was the country that uh, was the womb for the restoration to be born from and mm-hmm. uh, if everyone and is the will be the land of Zion ultimately and so whatever America is doing is the best any thoughts about that I don't know how it was in no, England <laughs> I really liked when you said it was the spiritual philosophical arm of colonialism yeah I do like what you said about the um and it's something I wanted to bring up also about the white shirt and tie thing, like you're just there to be a marketing employee. And I find that really interesting, even the grooming standards. You can't have long hair, you can't have facial hair. And it makes me wonder, is that just the point of all of it? Is there some sort of underlying thing where they just need the numbers for tax reasons? Or if they don't really care if people continue to go to church, like what is the real point of these mass baptisms? I do think they do care, but it just seems like the easiest number to inflate is just members, right? They Mm. want to be able to get up a general conference and say they've got X million new members. Yeah. But it does seem, it does seem like, I mean, I suppose you're talking about mission specific, maybe the focus on retention isn't quite there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and that that would be mission specific. And what you know, I had two mission presidents, and the second one, it seemed like he was under a lot of pressure to improve the retention. Um, and they thought that by converting men who could actually have a meaningful place in the church, that would be the way to do it. So telling. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> that the women are the ones more likely to convert, but less yeah. useful. Uh, um, but like you know, I there's like a legendary mission president, several before mine who was very famous for just baptizing the missionaries under his direction, just baptize anybody under any conditions. And we're just, you know, throwing people in the water to boost numbers. And that mission presidents is uh, in the 70 now, you know, they, they, they do have an ego about it of like, oh, if I can prove that our mission is booming, they'll think I'm a spiritual giant and maybe I right. move up the ranks a little bit. And, uh, that was always kind of foreign to me. I always thought you were supposed to pretend like you didn't care. But what I saw is a lot of people actually aren't even pretending. They really are <laughs> aspiring and they get it if they can show it. But then, yeah, I'm, I'm sure there's there's legal loopholes and things. We've heard that with like real estate and uh, temple building that, you know, you can avoid certain taxes or gain certain benefits as long as you're building a certain amount of buildings in certain places. And there's probably something to do with, yeah, that with membership conversion and stuff but yeah like sam said probably the most the easiest number to inflate yeah to show the false sense of growth like see how many numbers that we have now but what's funny is because they've had to relax the standards of missionaries it seems like as you mentioned more people are going home so they're not actually gaining more members and more young people not only are they not going on missions but they're leaving the church because they got the internet and they're like oh yeah i'm not doing this (laughs) this is crazy (laughs) what do they do because they can't really double down and make the mission more strict or more people definitely won't go but i think the last thing that i saw i maybe you guys remember who said it in this some sort of talk to the youth about how you know going on a mission is a choice but you made that choice when you were eight, when you got baptized. (laughs) When you had all the information and a fully developed brain at eight years old, that's when you decided. When you were still learning to differentiate between fact and fantasy, (laughs) you made a very important decision. Well, you shouldn't have signed up for it. It's really unusual. Yeah. You decided Santa Claus wasn't real and Jesus was. You had all the information. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It feels like they're in that classic late stage cult bind where they don't know whether to tighten the rules or relax them because Uh the truth of the matter is relaxing the rules doesn't get people to stay because it, you know, weakens the psychological hold that the organization has on members. But their perception of what's happening is that, oh, we're too strict because, you know, the modern world is so much more open and um, there's so many different ways of living. We the reason people are leaving is because they can't stick to the rules, but that's really not true. I mean, in the case of Mormonism, I feel like it is a pretty like clear case of its information control has been weakened and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, awareness of mental health and all that kind of stuff has increased and, you know, just outside inputs because Mormonism was a very closed system from its uh, inception and conception Inception (laughs) until, (laughs) you know, the internet basically. So I feel like they keep doing this stuff where they'll say, They'll do some stuff like you can get tattoos now. The strength of youth isn't quite as, um, you know, heinous. But then also you get 
people like, was that Jeffrey Ahond who said that? I don't remember being like, it's actually not a choice to go on a mission because they, they don't know which way to play it because really yeah. it's like not a battle they can win. And yeah. the, but they are getting richer despite it all. <laughs> which is ultim- the bottom line for a reason. Yeah. The, yeah. the system keeps running and strengthening itself. And you know, it's kind of been like that. I feel like they, they will always try to, they're always easing the reins while also advising people them. to be more and more rigid. Yeah, like, you know, in the 1960s, the for the strength of you said that you shouldn't, that women shouldn't have hair rollers in their hair when they go out into the public because that was immodest. What? And, you know, nobody cares about that now. <laughs> um, but so, you know, they can let go and see like, see, we're giving you, you know, we're, we're loosening up, we're hip, we're cool. <laughs> but don't you drink coffee or Satan will have a hold on you. Um, so maybe, you know, that's how it'll just keep going. They'll just be like, you know, 10, 20 years behind everybody else in maybe in 10 years, they'll fully accept gay marriage and then act like they've always been supportive of it. And, uh, you know, that kind of thing where they do adapt and, and they, they do try to play it both ways. Cause they say on the one hand, the church is going to grow and roll forth like a stone filling the whole earth. And on the other hand, in the last days, only a few elect people are going to be part of it. (laughs) And so it's like either way it goes. If it's growing at astronomical miraculous rates, it's fulfilling the prophecy. And if tons of people are leaving, well, it's fulfilling the prophecy. (laughs) Yep. They create this superiority complex within people. And I think that's why in my perception, it seems like when missionaries come home, either, either they completely double down or they leave. Because Mm -hmm. after you go through all of that pain and suffering and sacrifice, it's like, well, this better have been for something, so I'm going to double down on my faith and really buckle in or else what was all of that for? And then you have the people that are like, no, I'm out. So, (laughs) Tanner, was this when your shelves started breaking was your mission? Um, You know, I had always had shelf items, even as like a 12-year-old. I was like, how come how come the Joseph Smith translation in the Bible doesn't match up with the Bible verses in the Book of Mormon? That's a little weird, isn't it? And my teacher just being like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> um, so, you know, there's always little things that go and you go through the temple and that's a few more things and it's always just kind of adding up. But I, I don't think I really started struggling with my faith till college. Um, around the time we became friends, we were both studying communication at BYU, uh, BYU-Idaho. And... Um, I had a bunch of convert friends, um, several convert friends, and because I was so uh, zealous and I was always reading church history and always trying to understand and explain the principles of the gospel, um, people would come to me with their questions. And so some convert friends approached me with things that they didn't find, that the, the missionaries certainly weren't teaching in the first lessons, you know, that uh, polygamy, uh, race and the priesthood, um, you know, stuff like that. And I would say, let me study and get back to you. And then you do just a little bit of studying and you realize, oh, wow, there's a lot in here that I have not been told about that uh, is kind of kind of fishy. And it's pretty scary because it's a BYU-Idaho. If there's only if there's one place in Mormonism that's more insular or just as insular and culty as the mission itself, it's Rexburg, Idaho, Mm. where like 98% of the population is Mormon and they pride themselves on being extremely fundamentalist. Um, You know, they don't even wear, you can't even wear shorts or flip-flops on campus because for some reason it's more righteous to wear pants, I guess. (laughs) Um, Closer you are to business casual at all times. Yes. (laughs) So I, and I had never, I didn't know anyone who had ever left the church really, or at least I didn't think I knew anyone who had left. I, I knew people who had left, but was told that they just were sinners or that they were going to come back anytime. As soon as their unrighteous spouse came back, then they'd be back or, you know, whatever the gossip they knew it was true. Was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You just couldn't handle how much they knew it was true. Right. Yeah. The amount of, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like when a guy's not really interested in you and then you and your friends are like, he's just afraid of how much he likes you. <laughs> that's why he's not texting you back. Oh my gosh, that's so good. Yeah, yeah I, I keep getting comments on my page of like, you just refuse to repent for your sins. I'm like, okay, sins. Like, I don't even really believe in the word sin anyway, but like, sure, <laughs> that's why. Yes, I'm just a vile, wicked person who can't give up coffee. 
something you have to actively force yourself to like <laughs> over the span of at least a year. Yeah. I, I don't know why we didn't bring this up earlier about the information, the lack of information within missions because they really just preach a whitewash version. They don't even know that it's not the full version of the church. Right. And and then they're faced with questions from other people saying, yeah, what about race and the priesthood? And they're like, hmm? Like the, the church doesn't even <laughs> arm them with, oh, people might say this, so maybe you should respond with that. They don't give them any of that, which is so awful in the first place. Because they know it's bad. <laughs> yeah, it is bad. Because if they had good answers, they'd use them. <laughs> I know, I know. They really have really crappy responses to all of those with the fair Mormon stuff. But at least, I think, give the missionary a chance to defend it. Because when you just send them out into the world completely unarmed, they just feel attacked. And what do they do? Like how They just say, oh, well, that's just anti-Mormon. But if they actually knew, I don't know. It, if yeah. anyone in the church really knew the truth, they'd probably just completely crumble to the ground within days. So I guess it's not really an answer. But <laughs> I'm curious, Sam, then you you were taught probably the whitewashed version and you didn't really have all of the information. At what point did you find the information and realize you were kind of conned into it? Yeah, because it's the I mean, it's the whitewashed narrative within the whitewashed narrative of <laughs> Native American history. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff. Um, I mean, polygamy, I think because I ended up I waited like a year to get baptized because you have to have parental permission. And my mom wasn't super comfortable with it. So I think I was about 17 and a half when I got baptized, maybe 17. So I'm not sure what I knew by the time I got baptized. But by the time I wanted to get baptized, I didn't know about polygamy. I think I knew like I don't even know if I knew that polygamy happened by the time I got baptized or whether I thought it maybe started with Brigham Young and it was like a survival thing. I think mm. if I did know anything, that it was that. It was All the men had been killed by yeah. the mobs. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, Brigham Young had to marry all the women. Kind of like, well, because you had to be married back then because that was the way society was. So it was like the, a way of protecting women. That would have yeah. been the most, definitely no more than that. I may even have known less than that. Um, so yeah, I didn't know about that. That you don't have to know about garments to get baptized. I don't think that was something really? I knew about. Um, yeah, because I mean, yeah, I vividly remember the the day I discovered that that was a thing, and I was I was in deep by that point, you know, because obviously yeah. if you find that out too early, that could be pretty fatal. So I mean, there's a lot of stuff. They also don't. I mean, they obviously don't give off the the high control energy at the beginning. They're just mm -hmm. like, if you wanna quit drinking or if you wanna commit to not having sex before marriage, which I was already young, so that stuff was fine. But um, yeah, I mean, obviously like the, the control has to happen line upon line or you'd run a mile. And milk before meat, of course. Yeah, and even then, I mean, it, people still run a mile when they see Mormonism because it still does give off a vibe of that. But you know, when you're 16, you're not as aware of that. Mm-hmm. How was your, so your mom wasn't really that supportive of it. Do you feel like, did people in school treat you differently after? Or I'm, I'm curious about the after effects of being baptized and then how people did or did not accept that decision. And if the church continued to love bomb you or if you felt that fade away once you got baptized. I don't know that everyone at school like knew, you know, obviously like my friends and I'm, sh I think they thought it was weird. Um, but also like our other friend who they really loved was Mormon. So okay. I think they probably just thought I was doing it. Like it was kind of seen as more legitimate for him to be Mormon because he was raised Mormon, obviously, and his family was Mormon. But for me, maybe it was like a thing I was doing. I mean, realistically for the exact reasons I was doing it, but kind of, I mean, it was deeper than maybe they could understand for me. You know, it had touched sort of a spiritual nerve for me, for sure. Like I did truly, I was truly converted to Mormonism, but, um, yeah, so I think like most people in my life just thought it was kind of weird, but like sort of respectful, you know? Because I also think in England, because religion isn't much of a thing, there is almost a climate of like, yeah, we'll let people do what they want. Religion's a private thing. Like we don't, you know, they, people don't really want to go there that much. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there wasn't, you know, huge reactions. Um, still essentially had the same friendship group and everything. And in terms of the love bombing, I mean, by the time I was baptized, I feel like I was pretty firmly integrated into the ward and I did just genuinely have good relationships with people in the ward. So it didn't really feel like, um, you know, love bombing had ended. Because I, I do feel like all the people that sort of brought me into Mormonism in England were very genuine. Mm. Um, and obviously, as just like a random seven, teenage girl in the ward, people would want to take me under their wing anyway for that reason. Um, 
so yeah so it wasn't really like you know love bombing versus not love bombing that's not really how it I mean you know you you can call it love bombing but it, it also is genuinely people that genuinely believe that their thing is going to help you and genuinely have love and kindness in their heart and so I think there's definitely people that have come into Mormonism not like that like I think I had a very like soft kind entry and with genuinely good people and I think I'm sure there are others who who did have more of that like hot and cold experience because it was more just about the spiritual brownie points for the people doing the converting but yeah I feel like I had a pretty nice experience in that way that's so nice to hear and then in that case when you started questioning I I have this perception that it would be harder for a convert to leave because it took so much for them to believe and feel converted in the first place versus someone who was raised in it and kind of maybe never really believed it as much do you feel like it was really difficult for you to finally turn your back on it after being so devout? Um, I think, I think it was maybe, I mean, there was less decades of wiring there. So mm. I suppose deconversion was maybe easier, but mm. it was like a very traumatic few months. Like it was, I'd, it was just a big, as big of a deal, I think for me to realize it wasn't true as for anyone who was born in the church in terms of like how, terrifying and traumatic it felt because obviously you know I'm living in another country because of this thing right. so as much as like you know my family's not going to really care either way and will maybe even be pleased that I've left they're not really like a massive they live in an, on another continent because I've moved continents for this group <laughs> so you know it I'd say it was pretty similar in terms of like how horrifying it was to go through the deconversion but I do think it probably was like was able to happen in me quite quickly um within the span of a few months, just because there was like, I just feel like from a neurological perspective, that has to be true, that deconstruction can be quicker if you've got less, had, you know, it, it didn't, my psyche wasn't formed in Mormonism as a three-year-old, so. Mm -hmm. And then I also feel like it was not easier to recover from because I did, I mean, I was, in, I experienced so much like, you know, suicidal ideation and depression and, and a total nihilism after losing Mormonism, but, um, I mean, it was easier to adjust in the sense that like I, I had lived a life before that didn't involve religion. So I wasn't quite as like lost because I could just fall back on, you know, the way I used to be in certain ways. Whereas, you know, for a lot of people that are born in Mormonism, there's just so many things that feel so huge. So I think it was sort of easier in that sense, maybe. But again, that didn't really help with like the loss of meaning and yeah. nihilism. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time, you guys. You've been amazing. How can people find you and support you? What are you up to? List all your handles. YouTube, Zelf on the Shelf. Uh, that's our main platform. We're also on Instagram and TikTok and Twitter. Also, Patreon is a really big thing for us. We do bonus content there, and that's the primary way we support being able to do any of this. And the, recently we read through a couple uh, 80s Mormon teen romance novels. The sequels to Charlie. And it has on been a lot of fun. It's the nice. best thing we've ever done. It's like our, it's our elite <laughs> content and it kills us that it's only on Patreon. That's so amazing. That's a lot of fun over there. That's our plug for that. <laughs> um, any final thoughts before we go? Um, no, but this has been really nice and you seem really nice and I'm really happy you're doing this okay. podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for having on. It's fun to see your videos popping up more and more often. And like, yeah. ah, you're blown up right now. So thanks for having us on. Thank it's been you. so fun. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. It's been a wild ride. You guys know how it is with content creation. It's a little crazy, but it is worth it at the end of the day. <laughs> That's what they tell That's us. That's what Jesus said. That's what they It'll said. It'll be worth it. That's what they said. So if anyone watching or listening wants to support, I also have a Patreon, um, patreon.com slash to consciousness. I want to thank my brand new patrons, John, Mark, and Timothy. Thank you for your Woo! support. It John, Mark, and Timothy. Yay. All apostles or something. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you so much for watching. And until next time, follow your highest excitement, be conscious and be well. Mm -hmm. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, it would mean a lot if you could like and subscribe on YouTube and leave a review or a comment to help with their visibility. You can also find me on social media at Colts to Consciousness or reach out by email at Colts to Consciousness at gmail.com.